G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Over the next few programs, we're going to focus on the future of work. In the first program, we're going to take the lens to regional jobs, jobs that pay properly, with conditions, sound like a pipe dream. Actually, it is serious business, and there has been a Senate inquiry into the issue, especially for the folk who live outside the cities. I spoke with Emma Dawson, Chief Executive Officer of Per Capita, a Labor think tank, who gave a presentation to the Senate Select Committee inquiry into jobs for the future in regional areas. Before we cut to the conversation, I would like to recommend the transcripts of the Senate inquiry. They are all available online. One of the things computers are good for with a link on our podcast. They give questions and responses like a court transcript, so you get a feel for the information given and the calibre of the senators. So, for example, when I was reading Per Capita's evidence to the inquiry, all of a sudden one of the senators asks, what role do you think compulsion plays? I remember sitting up straight when I read these words. The compulsion he is talking about is making skilled migrants spend a certain time in regional Australia on first arrival as a condition of residency. The type of compulsion is not so important. Here, the real discovery is that the Liberal National Party government sees compulsion as the first policy tool, the primary policy tool in their armoury. It is like watching a bad mechanic, one who can't finesse an engine. I digress. My conversation with Emma Dawson covers the research per capita has been doing into regional Australia's need for meaningful jobs and their evidence to the Senate inquiry. One of the things that we've been looking at for a while is uh, the nature of employment and the nature of work in Australia and how unevenly it's distributed. And one of the things that we know and many people know is that unemployment and particularly underemployment rates in regional Australia are much higher um, in many pockets than they are in the capital cities. But a lot of the jobs in uh, traditional primary industries, um, secure jobs with good pay and good conditions are under threat from things like automation and climate change and rapidly disappearing. And that's really undermining the standard of living for a lot of people in regional Australia and the outer suburbs. And we saw that come to the fore in the election result in May. Um, so we are certainly very interested in how uh, we can work on policy settings and policy solutions that can support better jobs and jobs for the future, particularly in a low-carbon or a post-carbon economy, um, for people that have have traditionally um, worked in communities um, and economies that have sprung up around some of the older primary industries that really built regional Australia, like mining, manufacturing, agriculture and so on. And we think it's really imperative on progressive or those of us on the on the left side of the social democratic side of politics 
to grapple urgently with climate change, but to do so without leaving people behind and by creating a framework to ensure they've got good jobs in the future. And so your economist, Shirley Jackson, was looking really deeply into this. I noticed that uh, in your answers to the Senate inquiry, you were uh, quite clear that uh, you can see why people in areas like New South Wales and Queensland that are uh, strongly connected to the uh, coal uh, industry mm. that you know they're well-paying jobs they are, uh, are able to stay in those areas and their children are able to grow up there but you actually point out that there are a few anomalies around the statistics when it comes to those industries. Yeah so um, certainly particularly in coal mining the, the employment rates in coal mining are not as high as, as some people think, you know, um, and, they're, and they're declining rapidly. A lot of the good, secure jobs that were previously available in coal mining are already disappearing um, because it's one of the industries that is rapidly automating. So if you look, uh, for example, at a lot of the truck driving jobs that used to be very well paid in mining across the country, a lot of those are now done through automated systems with driverless vehicles from a control centre. So those jobs are disappearing already. And it's really a sort of false argument to say that if, uh, you know, that, that the only future for people in those regions is coal jobs. The people that are working in those industries know their jobs are under threat. They know they've been outsourced to labour hire a lot over the last uh, five to ten years in particular. And so where they used to have very secure conditions, um, good rates of pay, good rates of holiday pay and sick pay, they're now often on short-term contracts with unpredictable hours. They're not guaranteed the same number of hours from week to week and they've become quite insecure jobs. That's already happening and already upon us and it's really quite pressing that we ensure that we um, not only um, resolve the problems that are emerging through outsourcing and labour hire to existing employees in an existing industry, but say, well, look, this is not going to be a source of major employment for regional Australia in the future, but there are other jobs and other good jobs in manufacturing in you know, trades and, and um, uh, skills-based jobs in, in the minerals and rare earth sector, for example, that can be, but there are also new jobs emerging in fields like advanced manufacturing um, and advanced agriculture uh, that can have, because uh, it can provide good, secure incomes, but it's about getting those settings right and ensuring that those jobs don't go the same way as some of the, the more insecure jobs that have emerged um, in, in traditional industries over recent years. It's interesting in your analysis that you're able to uh, look at the whole of Australia. You know, you talk about something that's happening in Port Augusta. You're talking about something that uh, is happening in other parts on the complete opposite side of the country. Can you talk a little bit about that research? Yes, so we're really looking at the whole nation um, and we're going to, to drill down into some of the, the areas um, where we think there are specific challenges and specific outcomes. But you know, to think of, a, of regional Australia as a kind of monolithic beast is completely wrong, of course. Australia is a country with relatively low population density and large land mass. And what occurred throughout the you know, 19th and 20th century was a lot of regional centres, the most regional centres in Australia, sprung up around a, a particular primary industry. Now in parts of Queensland, that's in WA, that's coal mining, um, and in Hunter Valley, but in other parts of the country, it's agriculture or it's manufacturing. 
and there are different primary industries according to the region. And then, of course, the local economy springs up around that. So all of the jobs that support a community that uh, emerges in a particular region because of a primary industry, uh, then jobs come in healthcare and, and education and retail and the provision of services. When you see an attack or a decline in the primary industry of a regional centre, that actually has a flow-on effect throughout the whole economy. So we look at the different regions of Australia and say, well, what was the traditional primary industry there and what are the features of that community and what are the, um, the features of not just the physical environment but the skill set of the, of the local people, the infrastructure that's been put in place over the years and then what's the most effective, most efficient way you can build on that for what's next, for what jobs are next. So we've been looking at using a model that came out of Harvard in the US uh, that looks at the economic complexity of nations and what its industrial mix is. But actually using that model to identify what are the best opportunities for a region according to those characteristics. So an example of that here in Victoria is looking down at, at Geelong, where the old Ford factory down in Geelong, um, a lot of that infrastructure has been repurposed to build wind turbines. Um, it's looking at, at things like in the Latrobe Valley, well, what is the infrastructure that's in place there? There's a lot of um, energy distribution networks that could conceivably be repurposed to distribute renewable energy rather than coal-fired energy. It's about identifying those opportunities and then trying to work out, well, what are the industry policy settings that are going to encourage investment from the private sector? What's the role for government? What new infrastructure might need to be built in order to give those regions the best opportunity to move into the next phase of industry and, and jobs um, that can support that particular region based on its own characteristics and the skill sets of its, of its community? And what you're talking about is uh, looking at... Uh the fact that uh, no one-size-fits-all top-down yeah. approach really works. But uh, the Port Augusta one was interesting because it's a hydroponics uh, plant <laughs> for tomatoes. And tomatoes. then you're, yeah, yeah, and the Queensland plant is medicinal, uh, medicinal, medicinal cannabis. cannabis. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, they're both fascinating examples. And the, the Port Augusta one in particular, because it's a particularly dry part of the world and yet they're growing, you know, something like uh, 10 or 15% of Australia's tomato crop with hydroponics. And they're doing that through really innovative new technology that's allowing them to repurpose seawater. And they've developed a really thriving um, industry there that, as I said, is, is contributing a significant proportion of, of our national tomato crops. And I, I, there aren't many Aussies that donate tomato in some form or another, even if it's just a tomato sauce. So that's a really good example of saying, OK, well, this is a new way of doing agriculture that responds to changing um, climatic conditions uh, works within the you know the context of physical environment and infrastructure of the local community and comes up with a way of building an entirely new business in a particular part of the world that you know hasn't had uh, a great diversity of industrial bases. Similarly, in, in Queensland with the medicinal cannabis pro- crops, it's like it's looking at saying, well, we've got a lot of sunshine here. How can we how can we um, make the most of that? Uh, looking at different parts of uh, in, in WA, for example, where we have some of the world's largest lithium reserves. Well. Lithium is needed to make solar batteries, solar storage batteries. So that is a you know a prime example of mining a, a rare earth um, commodity that can be used to underpin a renewable energy industry. But it's about saying, well, let's not just dig it out of the ground and ship it off. Let's actually then value add by turning that product, you know, by building the supply chain, manufacturing the batteries here ourselves at home in Australia. There are massive opportunities across the board and, and you know, of course Ross, Ross Garno talks about this at length in his, um, in his new book Superpower so we're really focused on 
taking those lessons and working with local communities, so identifying local councils, chambers of commerce, researchers that are doing um, work in specific regions, um, and saying how can we how can we get a framework up that can then be adapted by different local communities to use in their own specific regional area. You're listening to Stick Together, Workers' Stories, Union News, and Social Justice Issues. We are in the middle of a conversation with Emma Dawson from Per Capita, a Labor think tank, who is talking about how to kickstart regional jobs growth in the future. So this idea that you know people have been fed now for thirty or forty years that there's no there's no role for government in the economy, and the best role for government is to get out of the way and let the market take care of it. And um, I've always thought that was nonsense, and I think most people now realise it is nonsense. They know most people on the ground know the market, if left to its own devices, won't deliver for the vast majority of people. It creates a lot of wealth at the at the top, but it doesn't. It does not trickle down. So it's quite apart from all this very detailed work on industry policy and going around the country um, working out what's best for each region, there's a bigger argument here that we are grappling with and we are engaging with, which is kind of reversing that belief that has taken hold amongst people after being hammered with it for 40 years, that small government is good government and government should get out of the way. The opposite is true. The only body that can deliver in the national interest for the majority of people is a representative government acting on behalf of those people. And the correct role for government isn't to, you know, go in with big buckets of taxpayers' money and, and you know, create directly create jobs. Although, you know, there is room for that. Certainly public sector jobs are a huge um, part of our economy and should be returned to being um, good, reliable, publicly funded jobs. But it's as much, if not more, about getting government to say, OK, We'll get the industry policy settings right. For example, we'll have a renewable energy target and renewable energy regulations that aren't going to shift and change every two years so the industry can invest. And also, what's the role of government in investing to build the infrastructure that can underpin these things? And looking at you know where we are now, with essentially it's, it's free to borrow money for governments at the moment with interest rates the way they are. So borrowing um, nationally to invest in infrastructure is a critical part of it as is ensuring that we invest in the skills and, and, and training and education that people will need to equip themselves to work in these industries and really you know, working hand-in-hand hand with the private sector to say, well, if we can get all those settings right, if we can build the right infrastructure, we can use the, the levers of government procurement to create jobs um, and, and provide the right tax incentives, research and development incentives to allow new industries to take off. Then we can have a really thriving mixed economy that sets out on a new course into the future. But we can't do that without an active role for government. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating because reading the uh, text from the the Senate inquiry, it seemed to me that the senators, I don't know if they were being uh, 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 coy, but they seemed to be asking you how could a government actually use the levers and powers that Mm. they actually have? It's interesting to me. Well, yeah, I think there was, you know, there was an element of wanting to get some of that on the record. Um, but there was certainly some cynicism from some on the on the government side that there was any role for government at all. Um, and they seemed to be suggesting that we were, or, you know, implying that we were suggesting some kind of state-planned or state-controlled economy. And that, that's far from the case. We think that, you know, markets are, are efficient and can work well, but only if they're regulated in the public interest and in that the economy then works for people rather than people working every minute for the economy and not seeing any return. 
So there was, you know, sort of a, a, a request for us to give very specific examples of industry policy. And, and while on the one hand we are still doing a lot of that work to look at what the right settings might be for future industries in different regions, um, we were able to say, well, you know, one example is really getting getting a renewable energy um, target in place and sticking with it, getting a renewable energy regulatory infrastructure in place and sticking with it because we've had a great deal of um, development. This country really punches above its weight when it comes to inventing new new technologies. Um, there was a group of scientists at the University of New South Wales recently who's worked out how to recycle all plastics, which you know might come as news to someone, but actually only a small proportion of Hard plastics are recyclable at the moment. Yeah. Um, they've worked out how to recycle everything right down to glad wrap. Um, but they're building their prototype plant in the UK because their R&D settings are much more favourable than ours are. So it's really about saying, well, Senator, there are things we could do now to encourage new industries and investment in new technologies that could build, build jobs for Australians and build um, both export and domestic um, economic industries that can really take us forward beyond the era of, of car- carbon and coal. You're listening to Stick Together, Workers' Stories, Union News and Social Justice Issues. We are in the middle of a conversation with Emma Dawson from Per Capita, a Labor think tank, who is talking about how to kickstart regional jobs growth in the future. You quite specifically say, and it's a statement from from per capita, we recommend that the goal should be sustainable prosperity for our regions, uh, not ec- economic growth at all costs. Achieving socially, economically and environmental sustainable employment growth in regional Australia. <laughs> and and that, it doesn't sound that radical really, does it? But um, it's quite a different approach to what what we've seen for a long time, which is just grow gross domestic product at all costs. Keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. Um, there's no point, and Jacinda Ardern said this, this recently, that economic growth with worsening social outcomes isn't success, it's failure. And we've seen that for too many people. While GDP might be growing, it's largely growing off the back of you know um, <clears throat> immigration and, and an increase to our population that's, that's driving productivity at a, at a headline level. But standards of living for households are going backwards. Um, at the same time, we're consuming far more of our natural resources than is sustainable for the planet. So we need to rethink how we think about growth. Um, you know, we need to rethink how we think about what is a, a healthy economy. Um, really what it is, is are people's standards of living being maintained or increasing and are they doing so in a way that's sustainable and equitable? Um, if everybody's life is, is enjoyable and the, the, the biggest possible number of people have the best possible quality of life. That's really what matters. What it, you know, it doesn't matter a jot how much the headline figures of growth are if all of that benefits going to the top ten or five percent of income earners or wealth holders. While at the same time we're destroying the planet. The uh, information that you guys have uh, found out about the uh, feelings of people who live in regional uh, Australia. Uh, is interesting as well because it's not just about, you know, coal. It's yeah. about being able to have a job where people can remain in the area that they grew up in and that their yeah. children can too. That's a very yeah. important issue. That it, yeah. They're not wedded to coal. No, absolutely not. I mean, in fact, um, you know, most people that, most coal miners will tell you they'd pretty much rather do anything else if they could get a job that paid as well and was as secure as mining jobs used to be. It's really hard, really dirty work. 
it's been necessary. And I think when a lot of people sneer at, at coal miners and people in the coal industry, they forget that they've done that hard and dirty work for generations so the rest of us can turn the lights on in the morning. So it's a bit rich to turn around now and say, well, you're all evil and we can do without you. Um, but people aren't wedded to coal. They're wedded to good jobs. They're wedded to their communities and to their standard of living and to being able to, to feed their kids and give their kids something better than they had themselves. They're wedded to their kids being able to afford to buy a house um, and to their kids having jobs that, that provide sick leave and holiday leave and the ability to have, spend time with their family. And they would like to see um, opportunities for their children to achieve those things without having to move out of regional Australia. So the sort of backlash against, uh, you know, the, what we saw as backlash against climate change policies of the inner cities by, by particular um, regional communities, particularly coal communities, was not uh, saying, well, we don't care about climate change. These people actually live in the parts of the country where they're experiencing the impact of climate change every day. It was more about them saying, well, don't tell us we have to give up our livelihood and we have to pay the price of climate change so that you can continue living the lives that you do very comfortably in the city where there are a plethora of service jobs and all kinds of options. And you've got to remember, of course, um, that these are the communities that have been at the forefront of economic change now for generations. They've been buffeted about by neoliberalism. They've seen their jobs destroyed by globalisation, by privatisation, um, by offshoring and automation. And every time they're told, well, this is the inevitable cost of progress, and you're the one that's going to have to cop it sweet. Uh, and this is just the latest iteration of people saying to them, well, we're going to have to do this, and I'm sorry, you're collateral damage. People shouldn't be collateral damage. It is entirely within our ken to be able to make this transition away from coal and to do so urgently without throwing entire communities under the bus. It's a social democratic way. Uh, I guess that's what you're, you're really saying. You need a lead-up time, and the lead-up time is now. In fact, you were saying that you thought that they should have been looking at this 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the lead-up time was 20, 30 years ago. Um, but that's no reason to say, well, it's too late, and now we have to sacrifice those communities. There are still absolutely things we can do. And, and as uh, one of the Queensland um, Liberal National Party senators said to us at that hearing, well... Um, there's still a lot, we still rely a great deal on royalties and income from coal. Well, while we've got that money from coal, and we will have for some time, you know, it's about a $49 billion export industry, we should be taking some of the proceeds of that. And rather than letting it all go offshore to shareholders and wealthy to multinationals, we should be investing that money into those communities to help them make the transition to what's next, to help them prepare for what's next, and make sure that that means creating new industries and good jobs for them while we've still got that money coming in. It is absolutely not too late to do that, although, yes, it would have been good if we'd started a long time ago. Did you see any traction or hope out of that uh, Senate uh, presentation? Did you feel that there was yeah. hope? And... Yeah, there was. Yes, look, I do. I mean, these things are always very, um, you know, they're, they're quite stage-managed, and you've got you've got senators from all the different parties. We had a, a Liberal National um, Queensland senator. Uh, we had a, a Labor senator from New South Wales and a Greens senator, the leader of Greens from Victoria. And they all had quite different agendas and, and quite different perspectives. But I think the fact that the Senate put on the inquiry in the first place um, shows that there is a real appetite for this, um, particularly amongst the more progressive side of the, the ledger. Um, I think, you know, at the extremes, um, there's a kind of view in the Greens that we just have to shut down coal now no matter what the outcome. Not all of the Greens believe that, but there is there are certainly some um, that seem to be saying that and don't show enough concern for the communities that will be left behind. 
And on the other side, you've got the even more irresponsible position of some in the Liberal National Party saying, well, we don't have to shut down coal at all. It's all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And that's essentially lying to people. Coal will come to its end um, you know, in, the, in the next couple of decades. We will start to see a, a marked decline, um, even in the next five years, to the demand for coal. We haven't reached peak coal yet, and a lot of thermal coal will still be needed for making steel until we can move to hydrogen. But to say that that's not happening and that there's anything our government can do to stop the phase out of coal is, is lying to people. So there has to be a middle way through that of saying, look, we are going to move to a, a post-carbon, post-coal world and we will help you get there. Um, I think there is appetite for that. And so it's about persuading people, though, that, that there is that government can help them after years of them being told that government can't help them. In fact, it's quite uh, curious because you use uh, Sir John Monash's uh, role (laughs) and you come from Latrobe Valley, so that's sort of fascinating in itself. Yeah, I I often come back to that as an example. Um, I did did grow up in the Latrobe Valley. Um, I went to to primary school down there. We emigrated from the UK, but um, I was there by the time I started primary school. Um, And that's a region that has suffered terribly um, from years of, of economic disruption. Um, it was based, of course, on the state... Most of the economy down there was based on the State Electricity Commission. Um, and that was that was set up in the 1930s by General Sir John Monash, who was not a noted lefty. Um, but he... <laughs> He, when he when we created the State Electricity Commission, and you have to remember that back then in the 30s, brown coal was the technology of the day. It was, you know, electrifying the world. Um, but he did so with working people at the centre of that project. So as well as creating a sustainable state-owned electricity grid based on the mining of, of coal in the Latrobe Valley, um, they built a model town, a, a, a model village, in, in that they created the city of Yalorm. Monash's principle behind that was that every worker would have a house, a good house um, with a garden. Um, the community that was built down there had every possible latest facility. They had the first um, cinema outside of the capital city anywhere in Australia. And it was created very much by, to, with, with the worker at the centre of that to say these are going to be good, well-paid jobs. We're going to provide houses. We're going to provide infrastructure and facilities for people while we do it. And for generations, you know, for 50 years, 60 years from the 1930s, certainly 50 years, that provided a very good quality of life for those workers um, in the Latrobe Valley, not just the workers that work directly for the State Electricity Commission, but the entire community that sprung up around it, all of the service industries, the hospitals, the schools, the retail outlets. And then, of course, from the sort of 1970s, 80s onward, um, first in the 70s, the lawn had to be dug up for more coal, but then we saw the privatisation of the SEC. Um, we saw a lot of those jobs start to become the conditions be removed as they went outsourced. Um, and now we have a, a, a unemployment rate, a long-term unemployment rate, and youth unemployment rate in the Latrobe Valley is you know, about 25 27%. So it's really about saying, well, we did this really well almost 100 years ago. <laughs> Um, we can do that again. We just have to have different priorities, and the priority can't just be extracting as much um, both, you know, physical infrastructure or physical um, goods from the earth and digging up as much as we can and shipping it off, but also just making more and more money for shareholders and private profit, but putting people and their well-being at the centre of, our, of a sustainable approach to, to building a good life. That's it for Stick Together this week. 
Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne. We are made possible through the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation and we come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and on iTunes and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And until next time, stick together.